Welcome to the Crystal Clear Podcast with Bill Crystal, editor-at-large and founding editor of The Weekly Standard. I'm Eric Felton. Bill, how are you doing? Joining us by Skype from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm doing okay up here in this liberal bastion, but I'm holding my own, I hope, and trust, and I'm very happy to have the nice break to talk to you guys back in the office and do this podcast. Well, good to have you on board. Um, You write in the Weekly Standard this week an editorial with the headline, Accountability, Responsibility, Deliberation. Are all these too much to ask in the America of 2017? I think the answer is yes, that's too much to ask. But Someone emailed me that. Someone read the editorial this morning online and sent a two-word or something email, you know, which was fewer, a several-word email. But I think I know the answer to your question. So people are a little gloomy, a little cynical, a little uninterested in an appeal to their better angels. But, you know, what can I do? I do my best. So when we think about accountability, responsibility, and deliberation, the words Roy Moore aren't the first thing that come to mind. But uh, one of the things you have to talk about in this editorial is the response to Roy Moore. What's, what's your take on the controversy? I don't even bother really to address the charges. I think it's pretty clear that some of them are true, at least some of them are true, and that there are real problems with Roy Moore. There were problems with him before all these charges about his personal conduct in terms of his professional conduct, a guy who removed twice, disciplined twice by the courts in Alabama and so forth. Um, uh, so, but my point is that a lot of people are looking for a way to avoid just having an up or down vote in the Senate election in uh, three or four, three or four weeks, I guess three weeks now almost. Um, you know, they want a gimmick to get him off the ballot. They, they hope he'll step down. He doesn't want to step down. And my attitude is fine. Don't step down. And let's just vote either for Roy Moore or let's us let the citizens of Alabama vote for either Roy Moore or Doug Jones. If they want to write in someone, if someone wants to mount a write-in candidacy, that would be fine and great. But um, that's, that's, you know, let's just, let's live with the consequences of our decisions. There's too many people thinking of gimmicks to avoid the fact that the Republicans of Alabama nominated Roy Moore. They should have known better, in my opinion. They're probably going to pay a price of losing the seat. They could well. But I almost think that this notion that the governor of Alabama should jigger the rules, they should arrange for a sort of uh, fake resignation almost by by, uh, the current interim senator, Senator Strange, to kind of delay, to have force a different special election than the one we're having now. I I think that's all a mistake. I mean, let's just just, uh, play this out straightforwardly and let the chips fall where they may. So, Bill, you need to look over your shoulder. It sounds like a garbage truck is about to run you I over, know. I backing mean, I don't know what's up. Going on here. I'm sitting in. A, I thought I was sitting in a fairly safe space, as they say at Harvard, and it turns out they're it's coming crowded to get, with snowflakes. Yes. Sorry about that noise, but anyway. Well, just as long as you don't get run over. we. Thank you. I'll do my best. Right. It's, I think people want to make cameo appearances on the <laughs> Crystal Clear podcast. President Trump has done his very best to avoid dealing with the Roy Moore situation. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, a spokesperson for the president, said, quote, The president believes that these allegations are very troubling and should be taken seriously, and he thinks that the people of Alabama should make the decision on who their next senator will be. So are you in sync with the president on this one? No, I think they, I mean, I think he, it's uh, unusual for President Trump to be so uh, hesitant to offer his opinions about various races around the country. And of course, he was an enthusiastic embracer of Roy Moore. He had endorsed Luther Strange in the primary, but as soon as Moore won, or really before Moore won, he was already signaling that he 
War was more his kind of guy, and War is running as a total Trump loyalist. Steve Bannon is for him. Um, so I think, again, President Trump should maybe have the courage of his convictions and just tell us what he would do if he were an Alabama voter. Uh, I would vote for the Democrat if given that choice. Uh, I think Jones is not great, but he's not crazy, and, and Morris just shouldn't be in the U.S. Senate, in my opinion. Now, if there were a writing candidacy for a respectable conservative or Republican, I'd consider that, too. Um, it's unclear whether that's going to emerge or not. So the allegations about Roy Moore were hardly the only sex harassment story of the week. And um, you also deal with this in your accountability, responsibility, and deliberation editorial, the uh, sex harassment issues going on on Capitol Hill. Um, you tweeted this week that as attention-grabbing as the Al Franken story and photo is, more significant is the revelation that a congressional office has been paying settlements to the victims of sexual harassment by lawmakers. Yeah, we had an outside editorial about that that, that I thought was strong, too. It is pretty astonishing. I think if you had told me a few weeks ago there's some fund in the House budget, I guess, it's, it's not indicated as such, I don't believe, that quietly was set aside to pay uh, off, not to pay off, that's not fair, but to pay damages, I guess, pay compensation, uh, settle lawsuits from people charging congressmen, presumably, with sexual harassment. I would have said, really? That's just, you can just do that? It's taxpayer money. This isn't, it's one thing, it's bad enough sometimes when a corporation does that. In fact, they get in trouble if their board of directors doesn't know, or the shareholders don't know. We've seen some of that with Fox News and with other corporations. Weinstein forced to step down from his own uh, corporation, but uh, his own business. But um, really, they can just sort of quietly pay off these things, and we don't know. So for me, there's a, this is a huge bunch of questions that are now teed up that people haven't quite focused on yet, because every day there's a different revelation about a particular individual, it seems. And those are worth looking at, too, obviously. But I mean, who, where did this money come from? Who said it was appropriate to use for these settling lawsuits or claims? Uh, who investigated these lawsuits or claims? How did they know what was a frivolous one and what was a serious one? Was there a legal process? Were there hearings? Were there witnesses? Was there an arbitrator? I mean, do we have a right to know about any of this? These are our representatives, and it's our tax money. And I do think we need to know what happened. And incidentally, if there are congressmen uh, who did things like this, shouldn't we know about that? I mean, it's it's one thing if they, uh, it'd be bad enough if they did it and never came out, obviously, or if it only came out because a woman came forward to, or a man to charge something. But in this case, again, taxpayer money's been paid, so let's find out to whom and, 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 and in, in, in response to what event or to, or to what uh, alleged event. Um, so I, I think, and I think people are going to insist on this uh, transparency, this uh, responsibility, uh, accountability, um, and let's, we'll see what happens. But it could be end up being a pretty big story. First of all, are we sure there are no such cases in the Senate? But again, I come back to the who, whose money, who allocated the money, who authorized it? Did they have to go to the Speaker? When you have, I assume there was some process, right? I mean, someone was having a hearing or listening to the charge and bargaining with the, the person making the charge to see what would be a satisfactory settlement. Did that have to be signed off on by someone? Did, yeah, well, whose budget did it come out of? Exactly. Some kind of black bag taxpayer money gives everyone an excuse, a legitimate excuse, an excuse isn't the right word, a reason to investigate this. And again, I think if people knew about this, if they, if they went to the Ethics Committee and they were just hushing it up, I think it will be kind of a scandal. I think it will increase, um, could increase by quite a lot the anti-incumbent sentiment, not just against two or three individuals who, or maybe more than two or three individuals who were charged with sexual <laughs> harassment, 
but against the whole institution. It's sort of a, you know, it's a club that watches out for its own people and uses our money to make sure the charges against people there are never publicized. I think that could be a, if I were, I think I tweeted this, maybe I put it in the editorial, I can't remember, if I were, you know, a, a, an outsider, a young person thinking of starting a career in politics, didn't much care for whoever was representing my congressional district, either in my own party or in the other party, this is the year I would run. I mean, I think incumbents are going to be very vulnerable in a climate where already people don't like Congress and a climate where there's disapproval of the leadership of both parties and Congress is gridlocked and there's hyper-partisanship. There's so many things you could say about what's wrong in, in Congress. This is another pretty big thing I think it's going to turn out to be able to say. I remember 25 years ago, the House banking scandal, which was a very trivial thing compared to this, I would say. In effect, members had their own kind of banking system on the Hill where they could run deficits, they could have overdrafts without being penalized at all. But at the end of the day, money, I don't think much money was being stolen, really. It was kind of a, you know, they had a cushy uh, industry loan program, in effect. Um, even that was kind of a, people were outraged. They didn't get that. Why should their congressman get that? And it certainly wasn't publicized or uh, and no one was so fessing up to how this got set up and who authorized it. I think this is much worse. One of the things you mentioned is the congressional ethics offices. And um, we've heard about them this week as the Al Franken story developed. The response was to send it to the Senate Ethics Committee. I don't quite understand what there is for the Senate Ethics Committee to investigate with regard to Al Franken. The photo is there. He's groping a woman while she sleeps. What, what is there for the Ethics Committee to investigate? It seems that sending it to the Ethics Committee is a way for people not to have to take a stand on the issue to say, well, there's going to be a process. You remember that, that scene in Bonfire of the Vanities when the police show up at, at Sherman McCoy's apartment, and um, one of them mentions that there's a procedure for investigation, and he latches on to that word. What's the right procedure? Oh, let's have a procedure. And it's all... The, the latching on to procedure is a way of trying to sort of fend off guilt. Yeah, sort of like when, when they, the UN Security Council takes up an issue, there's genocide going on somewhere, and, and no one does anything or feels any obligation to do anything because it's being discussed in the UN Security Council. Exactly. I tend, I tend to, to be a bit of a skeptic, too, about this use of the Ethics Committee. All right. Well, on the accountability, responsibility, and deliberation, after all of these sort of sordid matters... Uh, we get to serious policy matters, which is you say that these principles are relevant for the current debate on tax reform as well. How so? Well, just deliberation in the sense that I do think it's something a little odd about ramming this thing through as quickly as they're doing. I mean, they really, they had some hearings, sort of a markup, but they'll say they had hearings, but they had hearings throughout the year on tax policy in general. But the truth is this particular bill in the House hasn't been examined as thoroughly as a typical bill would have been. Uh, and now they're talking about moving in the Senate right after Thanksgiving. It is a pretty complex bunch of tax changes. They've added some things in the Senate that don't, uh, that aren't in the House. Probably wouldn't be bad to let experts debate this, to have some hearings. I mean, I hate to seem old-fashioned, but one could learn a lot more over a two-month period than one can over a week and a half, two-week period. So, and again, there's no time sensitivity. It's not like a, you know something has to be decided by Christmas or whatever. Except that Mitch McConnell wants to get it done. Paul Ryan wants to get it done. Donald Trump wants to get it done. I'm sort of a, uh, ambivalent about the tax bill. I'm, I don't think it's at all a great thing. It might help certain aspects of the economy. It hurts others. It runs up 
some additional deficit at a time when it's probably a mistake to do that. So I'm no big fan of the bill. Maybe if I were more enthusiastic about the bill, I'd be more sympathetic to the kind of uh, pushing it through. But I would say on other matters, of, let's say the confirmation for the Supreme Court of Neil Gorsuch, something that was you know, very important, obviously, for the future of the country. Uh, whatever you think of Gorsuch, we had real hearings. There was plenty of time for debate and scrutiny of his record. It was, you know, gone over with a fine-tooth comb. That's, I don't have any problem with that. That seems kind of appropriate, you know. And actually, I had, did a conversation at the time with Harvey Mansfield, the Harvard professor, who said this in a way is a good a good example of democracy at work, a genuinely you know, oppressive person testifying, uh, educating in a way the citizens about the Constitution, etc. I'm not saying tax policy is the same as Supreme Court confirmation, but there's something a little weird about ramming this thing through so quickly. And I would say from a political point of view, uh, my, my Republican friends are pretty happy that they'll pass the House, they think it'll pass the Senate, uh, they think it shows that Congress can do something, the Republican Congress can do something, but you do have to beware what you wish for sometimes in politics. I, I don't know if it's gonna, how it's going to work out in practice. And the only thing worse than not passing a bill might be passing one, and then the economy slows down, not because of the bill probably, but just because of the business cycle or something. It doesn't have the great positive effects. People don't see much in there that's something. It's that people don't see much change, if any, in their in their tax bill actually next year. A few people, some people will see their bill go up. And suddenly it could look like a very, you know, much more of a mixed bag, this great victory. So I think they'd actually be better off going slower, but that's not what they think, and, and they're not going to do it. But it is a bad example, I think, to, to this lack of, Deliberation, and I think it does say something about the weakness of the arguments. If you're confident in your, your arguments, you're happy to have them out there longer, usually, because you think that as the more people know, the more uh, popular the bill will get. It's not very popular now. Uh, their answer to that is jam it through before you know the popular opposition can mount. But as I say, I think they're they're buying some short-term relief at some risk for for being punished uh, later on in 2018. So, Bill, now you've achieved something remarkable, which is you've been on some college campuses in the United States here in the last uh, couple of days, and you've managed to do it without getting shouted down or physically attacked. How did you manage it? Yeah, I don't know. Kind of low-profile visits, I guess. I've actually quite a few people at Amherst last night for an interesting, I hope, interesting conversation with a professor there, uh, Elon Stevens. Uh, um, he did a good job, I think, and I hope I answered his questions in a, a moderately interesting way. And then I was at Tufts the night before, a little debate kind of with near attended of the Center for American Progress. I don't know. I think I've just gotten lucky. I, I, I saw that Chris Summers of AEI, an occasional contributor to our pages, a wonderful person, um, it was uh, really treated terribly at Williams, which is not that far from Amherst. So uh, she's on some list and I'm not, I guess, for now. But of course, that could change any moment. And it really doesn't affect the more fundamental point, which is it's just a total outrage that speakers are being shouted down and at uh, campuses, and there's an attempt to intimidate students from hearing all points of view. And in this case, a totally respectable and moderate point of view. People should probably be able to hear, should be able to hear immoderate and unrespectable points of view too, frankly. But in this case, it's particularly outrageous. And uh, I, I'm worried about that. I said that at both campuses. Uh, I was at. I said I was pleased that there was nothing happening here, but I thought it was very important that leaders of these institutions, from everyone down from the president down to the students, really take a strong stance in favor of freedom of speech on campus. And I see that eroding. I see that especially on the left, where there's more and more rationalizations for, uh, well, we can't let everyone speak because, you know, look at Trump and it's having bad effects and people are offended and, of course, safe spaces and all that stuff. So it's... Um, 
it's there are plenty of worrying things in the culture right now, but that's the that's certainly one of those. One thing to worry about the closing of the American mind, as Alan Bloom did thirty years ago, and that's a more sophisticated process and danger, you might say, of, of people not really being open to fundamental ideas and not getting a great level of education and so forth. But you, we're beyond the closing of the American mind. We're now down to sort of stopping people from just expressing ideas on campuses. And that's certainly, that's that's a much more dramatic, you might say, form of closing, a much, much uh, one that really needs to be resisted, I think, in, in every way. But you did manage to find some open-minded students on these campuses. I was, I was actually, this was, yeah, I was pleased to, by the conversations I had. I, I, I met some of the young Republicans on both campuses and, and people who introduced themselves as being conservatives, with standard readers, podcast listeners. Um, and I was struck, um, I, especially when the conservatives, I mean, the initial reaction to, to Trump and to the current moment is they're just depressed. They don't feel much, they don't like the left. And they don't feel much uh, identity with a Donald Trump type right. They may like individual congressmen and senators and governors, but they don't seem to be the future of the party. And right now they're not. So uh, they're depressed. I'm, I'm, I, I sympathize with that. But I was struck that rather than just saying, you know, I guess I'll just stay out of politics for the next 10 years or it's all hopeless or whatever. There was a certain sense of uh, resilience and of uh, fighting back. You know, that's what one young lady said to me last night. You know, I'm thinking of actually getting involved in politics because I think things are going so badly in, uh, in the country as a whole, but especially on the side I'm on, sort of the conservative side. And the only way to change that is to sort of get in there and fight. I don't know if she was, didn't have a long conversation with her. I'm not sure if she was referring, I think she was referring at first, just coming to Washington, maybe working for a congressman or woman or in a think tank. But I think she also had electoral politics in mind. I'm struck the last couple of weeks, I've had several phone and email conversations with people, young people mostly, uh, some of them 9-11, post-9-11 vets, you know, friends of friends, friends of our kids, you know, acquaintances, you know, people get in touch with you one way or the other. Uh, you know, I never really thought about doing this before, but I, there's an open seat suddenly in my district, I'm thinking of running, or I'm looking at my, at the state and the likely Republican nominee seems to me to be ridiculous. Is it hopeless for me to challenge him? You know, I've gotten, I've had those conversations, and I take that as a, as a heartening sign. All right, Bill. Well, thanks for joining us this week on the Crystal Clear Podcast. Uh, thank you, Eric, and I look forward to rejoining you in, 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 in Washington. Support for the Crystal Clear Podcast comes from the Great Courses Plus. Many of us have been concerned recently about threats to cybersecurity. It's a subject we all want to understand better. I've been watching a course from The Great Courses Plus that does a great job of exploring this, thinking about cybersecurity from cybercrime to cyber warfare. In this course, you'll learn from cybersecurity expert Paul Rosenzweig as he examines big data, digital espionage, and the tools we can use to protect ourselves from cybercrime. You'll get practical tips on how to reduce your own risk of danger online in your professional and personal life. You'll find out how to choose the most effective passwords, how to set up the most effective personal computer security systems, how to encrypt and erase personal data and documents, and much more. There's so much to discover on The Great Courses Plus. You get unlimited access to learn about anything that interests you, from award-winning professors, thousands of lectures on topics like world history, science, even photography or chess. And with The Great Courses Plus, you can learn entirely on your own schedule. Watch video or stream audio to enjoy the lectures wherever you are. 
I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. And right now, they're offering Weekly Standard listeners a free month of unlimited access to all of their courses. But you need to sign up through our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. Start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash standard. That's it for this week's Crystal Clear Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.